Shastri, welcome to Network Capital. I'm thrilled to host you on our podcast. Uh, your career has been such an inspiration to uh, young people around India and across the world. Um, so through this podcast, we try and figure out why people do what they do and uh, do a deep dive into some of the challenges they face, uh, what goals they have, and uh, some advice for uh, their peers around the world. So tell us who you are and uh, what does an average Monday in your life look like? Hi, Atkarsh. Thanks for having me. I look forward to chatting with you today and sharing what I can uh, and what I'd like to. So um, an average Monday looks like a lot of things depending on what part of the year and what part of the month we're in because Masterji is an ecosystem. It consists of three parts. One is the training vertical. The second is the contract manufacturing vertical. What is Masterji? Masterji is uh, difficult to define, but in many ways it's I like to define it like an ecosystem because that's really what we are. We're a three-part ecosystem, starting with uh, training women in slums and villages around Delhi, UP, and Haryana in fashion design. Uh, that's one part of the ecosystem. The second part is contract manufacturing. So once the girls graduate from the training program, they join a factory in Delhi where we manufacture for over 50 uh, international brands, fashion brands. And the third part of this ecosystem is a fashion brand, which is an in-house brand that we have. It goes by the name of Heimat. So Masterji is this ecosystem which looks at questioning why uh, women are not in higher rung roles in the fashion industry as far as manufacturing goes. And just by the name, uh, if you've grown up in India and you have the cultural context, you know that the word Masterji immediately rings a bell to, to a person who is a powerful person on the factory floor in a garment factory. It's the person who cuts the patterns, who has the most important role in a factory. And and if you know that cultural context, you also know that a Masterji is never a woman. So inspired by this um, stereotype and the lack of women in this role, this ecosystem was designed because we all know that it's not that the women can't do this role. It's not that they don't have, they can't be taught these skills. It's the system around that around them that uh, prevents them from entering these roles. And it's more to do with the, uh, the mindset of the people rather than their ability to learn the skill themselves. And when did you first discover this problem? It was um, 2015 was when it really got crystallized in my head to the point where I saw the problem and I couldn't unsee it. That was when I had just graduated Parsons and moved to Delhi in the hope that I would launch my own fashion brand. But as I was putting together the pieces of wanting to launch my brand, I realized that there was a big problem and I couldn't unsee it. And it made me really uncomfortable to manufacture with this existing system, which was so broken. And what was the process of uh, starting Mastery? So what luckily, was the first like, basic idea? So we understand that uh, you uncovered a problem and you un couldn't unsee it. Walk us through the initial steps and missteps. So luckily, I had uh, 15 years of volunteering experience with my mother's NGO in Delhi, where I saw what 
the dynamics of the community are if you're in an urban slum what does the living situation look like what is the livelihood situation what a silai center looks like now we're all familiar with the concept of a silai center right it's a place where women go they learn how to sew uh, to a great extent it's very home style sewing and mending it's not really a, a place where you learn a skill to join the industry it's more a social space so having been exposed to so many years and so many nuances of the inequalities that exist in our cities uh, for so many decades i think that is where it really began the subconscious understanding of the problems and the situation and as i grew older and started to uh, have internships in fashion and have jobs in fashion and study fashion i realized you know wait a second the issue is somewhere else and and so when i moved back i started to put the pieces together and it was really when i completed my graduation at Parsons finished working for Armani and DVF and a couple of other designers in New York I decided that what really what I was really passionate about was the the other part not so much the designing the clothes at that point although I loved designing clothes but at that particular point it seemed like the best use of my education and energies would be in designing a curriculum not necessarily jump into designing clothing right away and how did you go about designing the curriculum first of all kudos to 15 years of volunteering experience that's uh, almost 10000 hours uh, yeah it, initially it was yeah. basically my mom just uh, taking my sister and me so it didn't start off by by us you know having that awareness that this was volunteering now it's a word it's a thing but when we started uh, it was more like my sister and i were young teenagers and my mom wanted to start her ngo and she needed all hands on deck and that's how we got involved and it just became such an intrinsic part of our lives that uh, there were no two ways about it life always had adharshila in it which is her ngo i see so walk us through the curriculum development process it seems like uh, your mom's nonprofit was also an influence uh, as well as a mentor in terms of experience Yeah absolutely i think uh, the environment that you grow up in really influences the choices you make in your career and for sure there was um, there was an influence on that front and if i go into the curriculum process i would say it was literally just uh, one day i decided that i'm going to write a new curriculum but I, because everything i've seen out there is subpar as far as the actual problem is concerned because uh of course there are skill development programs out there that are focusing on teaching the skill but i think the problem is somewhere else uh i think that there are young women out there who want to learn something and have a life of purpose and realize their potential and it's not that programs don't exist for them to learn the skills i think the programs are just inaccessible and the mindset of the people around them is just not the kind of mindset they need to get out of their homes so realizing all of these problems i decided to write a curriculum that would be a combination of not just a really high quality skills that you need in the fashion industry but also uh, the skills you need to navigate your life and to question things around you and to question the barriers that are holding you back i see and uh, how was it re- received in the market who were your first target consumers how did they take to it so we went from uh, when i first piloted the program the students who had been learning already in that environment were not used to paying for any classes 
they were used to receiving the classes for free and they were used to receiving classes that were not very good quality so i had to go to a group of 20 women and explain to them that first of all their teacher was going to be a traditional master ji who was a man mm-hmm. as opposed to the female teacher they had before and second that they were going to pay even if it was a very nominal amount of 150 rupees that they were going to pay as opposed to getting a machine for free which is the model which was being followed in most ngos at that point in time and so there was backlash because nobody wanted to pay um i remember one student saying well what else are we going to get uh, in this course and i said well you're going to get a really high quality education which is something i've learned at parsons it has it's it's international but it's very much local and relevant and it's something i've designed myself and i believe that this is what's going to uh, help you break through the glass ceiling in the fashion industry but there was backlash because the way that ngos are set up right now in the urban slums there's a lot of uh, supply of these free programs or low cost programs which are low quality as well so there are a lot of options for such programs but they are really not good quality so there was backlash to start with i really had to earn the trust of the community i had to go from home to home selling my curriculum people just didn't want to learn it just because it was there i had to convince them and it took months and now years and showing them the results that look what this education is doing for you 6 months or 1 year down the line because the girls start to earn money within 3 to 4 months of being in the program they can pay their own fee and also afford their own training materials within 3 to 4 months but you know these are things that you can only prove with time no matter what i said no matter how much i tried to convince them it was a sales job i was trying to sell a curriculum that i had designed but i could only show them with time um how much it would benefit them so it that's why this process is very slow and long drawn and selling a curriculum isn't easy ask any person who's done that so um it's great that you were able to manage to uh, get the trust on something uh, that was fairly intangible and people were skeptical about it but i find that uh, from the uh, out, from the initial stages you are very clear that you're building an ecosystem so were you simultaneously building the ecosystem and selling the curriculum or you had something in place and then you thought that curriculum would be a good idea it started with the curriculum for a while because we had to iterate and evolve and improve upon the first version of the curriculum and we set up uh, two training centers before we set up the factory three in fact so we needed to train enough women so that we could have a factory of all women so the curriculum came first the contract manufacturing came second and the brand came last because we needed to have also the support of the industry to say here is a factory and we have invested money in it and we believe that these women can be can produce products of as good quality as the rest of the industry and if we can invest in it so can you and then we got one brand after the other to get behind us and manufacture with us and then we launched our brand because i felt like the brand ultimately added a lot of credibility to our quality and services so the brand that we're talking about is hymet yes that's right so um you obviously had worked for famous brands in new york so i think uh, your credibility from having an international career worked with international brands would have helped you but what changes did you have to make when you decided to set up uh a business like that in india 
and how did you you know think about balancing that with uh, a relatively social enterprise kind of a model existing concomitantly so the uh, the way that the business model is is very different from how a traditional garment factory would be the expectation of when the company becomes profitable the expectation of the kind of worker dynamic you would have if you're looking at hiring carigas from the industry as opposed to hiring graduates from your own training program there's a very big difference in the culture i think the amazing thing is that the dna is so strong because the girls come to us when they're 18 19 20 some are even older but they start from the training centers and start to have the master ji dna to begin with the professionalism the creativity the sincerity so by the time they do come into the industry they are professionals and that's creating a really interesting dynamic in the industry right now because you're not a worker although you are sewing and you're cutting patterns and you are a fabric cutter but essentially there is dignity in that role which wasn't there before and you're not a mazdoor or you're not uh someone who's getting a minimum wage but you are a professional with a career you're a maker and because that dna is so strong when you walk into our factory in delhi you'll notice that while there are women on the machine there are women doing cutting and packing and finishing there's just this aura of dignity and confidence which you don't see in factories otherwise and uh, how uh, how different is it from the old order where uh, men were doing most of the uh, technical work and women were the support staff you've in a way managed to flip it right how has it changed the confidence of your stakeholders it's completely shifted because when people walk into our factory they look around and they say well where's master ji and we're kind of like you know they people walk into our factory and they say where's master ji but it's all just you know it's all just the girls doing the work and i think it takes a while for people to adjust to that just the visual of having a woman on the cutting table i think that is the thing that the industry is starting to get used to which is very interesting and uh, did it surprise you did you think that you will get to this level so soon because it hasn't been that long you know um yeah it has not been that long we've been working on this for about 3 and a half years or so it it does surprise me but it does come with its own fair cha- uh, fair share of challenges and i feel like we still have a long walk way to go that. walk us through the challenges um it's you're looking at uh, people who have far lesser experience we are hiring girls who are younger have lesser experience have a lot of social challenges and then we're up against factories down the road who will undercut you on price because they are operating with uh, different types of with the old order basically which is contract labor uh, minimum wage and and there are there are reasons why there are costs on which the fashion industry is built which are not necessarily fair to the worker always so when we are up against competitors like that it's definitely harder to operate and uh, tell us about your customers who are they our customers are so we have a couple of different kinds of customers uh, i'll start with the first vertical which is the training so our customer on the training front is corporate csr so a corporate will hire master g as a training partner and we will execute our curriculum on their behalf at an ngo 
So that's the first customer that we have. Explain this, this in more detail because uh, you're a subject matter expert. Most people who are listening to this podcast are not. So I want them to visualize what you're ta- saying. Sure. So basically in India, uh, there's a mandate that companies have to spend a certain percentage of their revenue on uh, on social activities, which could qualify as something where you help a vulnerable community with skills or education or you look at issues related to water or or some diseases and whatever qualifies as CSR uh, falls within that mandate and by virtue of that there are many companies looking to work with consultants who can help them understand how to utilize these funds. So we operate as consultants to some of these corporates. Our partners are uh, Sleepwell Foundation, Fena Foundation, ASF. These are a few companies that we consult with and we help them run these training centers. So the training center has our curriculum, our examination certifications. We make sure it's running as per our quality standards and, uh, and we're doing this as consultants to the CSR. Does that make sense? Is that oh, total sense? Okay, okay, great. Um, Please explain the other customers as well. Sure. So the other customer is at the contract manufacturing unit that we have. These are brands that are looking to have a transparent and ethical supply chain. So they are looking for factories where they know that the people are being treated well, the, uh, the factories have good working conditions and many other factors that because they really care about how their product is made because they have customers who really care about how their product is made. So this is the B2B clientele where we manufacture for other brands. And then the third type of customer that we have is the direct customer where we are selling our own product. So this is the B2C customer, which is women who are upwards of 25 years of age um, who are looking to shop contemporary clothing um, in India. And our website is also, uh, we ship internationally as well. So that's the third type of customer. So the, uh, let's explore the third type of customer in more detail. Does, the, does he or she find you online or offline? How do you reach that customer? There are a few different ways. So we are across 10 stores in India in different cities. So that these are multi-brand stores where other you'll find other designers as well. That's one place where they can discover us. Second, we sell on online platforms that are also multi-brand platforms uh, like Nike Fashion and La Sosta and other websites like that. And we have our own website, uh, shophimat.com. So either of these platforms. And then sometimes we participate in exhibitions, uh, which is also great because I get to meet the customer at at exhibitions. And so far, what has worked well for you and what do you want to um, do some more testing and exploration on? I think each of these channels have their own benefit uh, because I know that I the best way for me to reach a different geography is to be placed at a multi-brand store there because I know if they already have the footfall and people are coming in to discover new brands, that's one way. Uh, but I do think that all of them have their own pros and cons. It really depends on what works for your brand. Um, when you when you think of uh, you know where how far both Master G and Heimut have come in the past uh, four years, um, is there anything that you're particularly proud of or particularly inspired by? And also, is something that you wish you did differently? I think. If there was one thing I would do differently, it would just be 
to be more sensitive to my inner voice and to believe in my own uh what i wanted to do and because the time when i look back and i think of the times that i made a decision which didn't work out so well it was because i didn't have confidence in the first thing that i wanted to do and i and i went by all the noise around me so if i could do anything differently it would be to listen to myself and my gut feeling and have more confidence because it comes from a place of experience and cumulative experiences it it's not just on a whim so i would say just having more self confidence in my decisions and uh what was the question before that inspires you what do what you, what, what do you think you've done well and what has worked well for the brand and the company the individual women that i work with each individual it's about a couple uh, of these women uh okay wow there's so many so many inspiring stories but one of them that really inspires me is uh, ritika she actually comes from a village in haryana and she changes three buses to get to work every day it takes her 2 hours one way and when she first started working she was one of the first women in her village who had stepped out of the village for a job and that's not easy to speak of in a place like where she comes from because people make all kinds of pass all kinds of comments and because she's coming home by 8:30 obviously once you get out of work it takes time to get home people are passing all kinds of comments and she has stood her ground and she has continued to come to our contract manufacturing unit for almost a year now despite all the challenges that she's been facing and initially when she joined us her parents said well you can't join because what are people going to say and it's not safe and all of these reasons that these women get to hear all the time and she didn't eat food for 3 days and she said until you let me go to work i'm not going to eat food and finally they had to give in and she joined back the factory and i still remember when she left i think it was like a friday and she said ma'am i'm not coming now because my parents are not allowing me and i said ritika you have to come back she didn't eat food till monday and she came back and she said listen i'm going to eat food now because i haven't eaten food for 3 days and they didn't let me they weren't letting me come and i think it's just it's it's determination like that that is where my inspiration comes from that is incredible so powerful and how many girls are there today at at the center so we've trained over 1000 women so far 1000 women and all of them have also uh, found some kind of employment Yes, each one of them, all of them have an income of some kind. Either someone's in a job or has their own business or has started their own training center and they're teaching our curriculum which I'm so proud of. You know, that's one thing where you've achieved uh, unique success because uh, you're one of the few organizations that I know of uh, hands-on uh, that has managed to actually close the loop of uh, from curriculum to actually dollars. uh many people do one aspect of it and unfortunately until you close the loop um the entire education to dollar game uh, is not possible and unless and until you're actually enhancing the household income it gets really difficult to make the case for education unfortunately in certain households so i think uh, that's one thing you should definitely be proud of as well closing the loop meaningfully um and i feel that the model that you've applied is not just valid to uh the fashion weaving and 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 this space but also in other spaces i feel in tech uh and others instead of blanket statements like we play trained x million of people by y which is in many cases an exaggeration 
we might want to look at micro targets and then really see how they are achieving it. So, um, yeah, have uh, have have you explored uh, actually venturing into an affiliated space or right now your hands are completely full with managing these three components of the ecosystem? What do you mean by affiliated space? Like, you know, I mean, uh, what I was talking about, the same model can essentially be used to skill somebody in a different sector, uh, the curriculum to uh, employment model. So I was wondering if if anyone had approached you or you had approached anyone to to see whether you could replicate this model in another industry. I'm happy to share our best practices and what I've learned over the years. But as far as our focus is concerned, I'm looking at going deeper in the years to come as opposed to going wider. So in the foreseeable future, I only see ourselves being in the fashion industry, but I'm always happy to share what we've learned over the years. And if, if that applies to youth elsewhere and, and people who need opportunities elsewhere, that would be a privilege. Uh, but tell us more about going deeper. So what are your targets for the next three to five years? What would be uh, what would success look like for you? So going deeper means uh, incorporating technology, because right now our training modules are very much in person, physical, in the classroom. And only those women who are physically able to access our training programs, like the training center, those are the only ones who can learn, which I think is a disservice because we've really figured out how to fundamentally change the thought process and thinking systems in, in communities. So now we're looking at building something called G-School, which is essentially video tutorials and audio and video content that can go out. As long as you have a smartphone, no matter where you are in the country, you can access our training modules and interact with students anywhere else. So we're going to start by building out that content and then design an LMS, a learning management system, so that women in different parts of the country can access it. Because if we set up a training center in every small district and every small village, it's not viable. But what is viable that even if a group of five women in rural Gujarat get together and have access to one smartphone, they can always learn the skills together. Understood. Um, I'm going to shift gears slightly uh, and move to your life in New York. But uh, is there anything that you'd like to share about uh, your social enterprise and business that uh, other people should know but don't or questions that you want to be asked more but aren't? I would say that there has to be a non-negotiable always. Uh, a few key values or a few key things that you're not willing to change about your business that makes it what it is, that gives it its soul. And then everything around that, you have to be open to pivoting as and when required. But in order to remain true to why you started and why you do what you do, it's important to decide what those non-negotiables are. And then no matter what happens, operate from the standpoint that this is something I'm not going to compromise on. And for me, that's I put the girls at the center of every decision I make. Got it. Thank you. Walk us through your life in New York and Boston. What was it like? And uh, when you graduated from Parsons, what kind of a career did you imagine for yourself and how different does it look like or same similar does it look like today? So growing up, I always wanted to study fashion, but somehow landed up as business school. So I went to Babson for my undergrad. I studied four years of business and then fashion school came a couple of years after. So even while I was at business school, all of my internships and work experience was in fashion. I worked 
at Walmart in the apparel department. I worked at TJ Maxx, which is a discount retailer in the US, that too in apparel. I worked in uh, a couple of social enterprises, which were also related to fashion. So I think I always, because I was constantly gravitating towards fashion, because I always wanted to study it, all my experience came from different ends of the industry. So absolute, uh, you know, the most reasonable clothing, which Walmart develops to going to Dennis Basso, which is super, super luxury. You're looking at alligator uh, skin jackets you're looking at fur and then in between you have you have dvf and armani and there's all of there's this entire spectrum that i was very fortunate and privileged to have access to which helped me understand uh, what's happening on the manufacturing end in india because when i was at walmart i was in india and on the other hand looking at fashion week in new york i think it just unintentionally just gave me this very interesting perspective on the entire spectrum and uh, now that you're here, you were telling, is, is it different? Is it the same? Did you one day think that your interest in fashion will get you to be a, a social entrepreneur as well as an entrepreneur, a mainstream designer? I mean, it's hard to think of what I was exactly thinking back then. But one thing is for sure that I always wanted my business to have impact on, on lives and I know that it wasn't going to be a pure for-profit, but I really f started to find the vocabulary for it when I joined the Acumen Fellowship, because before that, I didn't really have the vocabulary even to justify to myself that my business was going to have such a strong uh, leg of social impact. And because you don't often find spaces where such ideas are accepted, you're often you know, considered to be crazy. I think that was the first time when I was really able to find a group of people that didn't think that this was a crazy idea. So I would say the whole idea of patient capital and how I came across this vocabulary really helped me. And you also mentioned uh, that one talk that really inspired you was a talk on this idea of patient capital. And then you, it, then it made all the difference that a lot of the ideas in your head started to materialize. Um, what was, uh, tell us more about the experience of Acumen Fellowship, the nuts and bolts of uh, how you learned a new language in a way. The Acumen Fellowship is a fellowship where, where 20 people from India, Pakistan, East Africa, and now many more geographies of the world are selected who work in social, different social spaces. So you could be a business owner, you could be working in the government, you could be a, someone in civil services. But what ties everyone together is just a really uh, deep uh, passion and interest in social change. And I think what was really unique about that space was how different all each of us fellows were. But when we came together, we kind of understood the common language of wanting to bring about social change in our own ways. And that was a really transformative experience because while a lot of the selection process depends on your work, ultimately, it's a lot of personal, deep personal work that you go through during the year. It's a lot to do with understanding yourself better so that you can propel yourself to do the work in a more effective way. So it's a lot more personal, deep work. There are fellowships that are more to do with your work and focus more on the business or the nonprofit that you're running. But the Acumen Fellowship is more about the personal, deep work. Absolutely. Um, 
And once you finish the Acumen Fellowship, uh, how are you implying or employing some of the lessons today in business? Do you feel that one day one of the girls that uh, that are trained at Master G will go on to get the Acumen Fellowship? I think they will, but I'm curious what what do you feel and do you see that happen in the near future? Absolutely, I feel like there are so many women from the program who could apply for this fellowship and perhaps get in in the next few years because they're all becoming agents of change and they understand that while we do come to work every day to deliver the next shipment or to manufacture the next garment they all know that they're they're on to something bigger so i i think they're all uh, candidates who are agents of social change understood who's your biggest who are your mentors and who's your biggest critic or who are your biggest critics so my dad is definitely um, a mentor. He's been in business all his life and he has really mentored me a lot through the years. Um, I've been really inspired by my mom because she's the one who first took me into the urban slums of Delhi. And that's where I really saw the stark inequalities and started to understand how to how to live within that stark contrast without feeling awkward, but rather thinking of ways to find solutions uh, very early on, you know, the kind of conversations we had at home. I think a huge part of who I am is to do with the kind of conversations I had growing up at home. Uh, it's really funny because my dad had this uh, had this idea when we were when we were really young, eight and ten, I think my sister and I, that if you don't burst fireworks on Diwali, I'll give you carbon credits and carbon credits were basically money so that we wouldn't burst firecrackers. And there are many such small examples growing up that we've had, uh, that we've, you know, spoken about at home that I feel have really shaped the understanding of what a business should look like and the purpose of business. And uh, your critics, how do, what do they criticize you for and what do they tell you and how do you respond to critics, if at all? My critics always tell me that pattern can't make girls. Even today? Even today. Once a week, minimum. Oh, really? Walk yeah. us through them. Walk us through that. So every time I interview somebody new, it's the response is always, well, the girls can't do it. You don't, you don't actually think the girls are going to do it. So uh, whenever someone new joins the team... CSR partners sometimes have the skepticism. So the CSR partners aren't always from the industry. So the nuances of understanding what a pattern maker, like why the role of a pattern maker is really so gendered isn't always, you know, that understanding isn't always there in the beginning. Uh, but obviously they get behind the concept because they believe in it and they believe in the power and value of it. I see. So you have, you'll have to, um, you know, essentially also figure out a way to change mindsets at scale from thousand to one billion. Hopefully soon. Yeah, yeah, and I do think the girls right. are right. going to be uh, are going to make that happen as they go out in the, into the world and and get jobs where they question all kinds of stereotypes. You know, the last section of the podcast is about uh, personal productivity. You know, you obviously have a busy life um, managing three different components of a very dynamic ecosystem plus the other things that you've been involved with, fellowships, awards, so to speak. How do you find time for yourself? And uh, how do you learn new things? 
that's a tough, tough question. There is a little, little time for myself, not as much as I would like to have. But I think when you're really passionate about what you do, there is somewhat of a blurry line between work and personal life because you just are you you there's there's some line where the where your passion tends to become your work and vice versa so I do find time for myself I like to read and I like to make sure I get a workout in no matter what um, and things like that and how do you learn new things how do I learn new things I think just by always being curious I don't think I meet anyone thinking or assuming that I know I know what they know no matter who I meet there's always a curiosity and that's how it's that's how it begins and then conversations help me learn new things I make sure to have a hobby at all times learning an instrument or traveling I think it's really important to be curious and I don't want to sound preachy at all no but please do I, I mean we think have a podcast to learn from you uh no but I do that think that you and this does sound very cliched but I honestly feel like every single person you meet can teach you something and do you actively try and adopt it in your life yes yes very much what's the one thing that you believe in that others mostly disagree with I believe they can and I believe they can break every single pattern that's holding them back yeah Okay, cool. Um, any any parting advice for people uh, venturing into the entrepreneurial space in India and trying to break patterns and redefine customs? I would say uh, understand the problem well, but when you start out, the problem looks black and white. And as you keep going deeper into setting up the business and trying to solve the problem, the grays start to appear. Uh, but it's important to remain focused on why you started and what was the problem you wanted to solve. Uh, and I think that's that's the way to remain, uh, stay the course and remain focused. Yeah. Hey, Gajji, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a phenomenal experience, just learning about uh, your journey of building a venture that's making a difference on a day-to-day basis. I know the work's not done. There's a lot more to um do and lots of places to go to uh, we wish you the very best and uh, look forward to hosting you again soon for a masterclass thanks Gayatri thanks so much